Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Titus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this purpose that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen. May you be blessed by the reading of God's word. Great job, BJ. You had a trek to go. Thanks for reading that for us this morning. Well, here's the challenge for me this morning. The challenge is to try to finish us up in the book of Ephesians. We've been in the book of Ephesians since January, and uh, I'm going to try to make it through. But if, but if I, uh, juice pouch, that ain't going to work, man. I, okay. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> they did it to me too, Frank. Why am I going to stab it with, uh, just keep going, right? Wow. Thank you, Jared. Let me regain my composure. We've been in Ephesians, chapter, uh, the whole book, since January, and what we've been looking at is that God called us, the redeemed, uh, to himself. And in calling us to himself, in the first three chapters, Paul has given us our theology. What do we believe to be true about God? And we looked at chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, the longest sentence in the, the New Testament, if not the Bible. I know we break it up the way it's been uh, in our Bible, it's broken up, but it's one continual flow uh, about the redemption and about the progress of redemption that Christ has done for us, not that we've done with Christ. We've been totally redeemed by God, chosen by God, not of works of ourselves, but of the demonstration of the love and the character of God. And so in chapter 1, 2, and 3, he lays out for us what do we really believe to be true about God. Because 4, 5, and 6 do not matter if we don't understand chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's our, it's our doxology. And what do we, as the church, profess to be true about who and what God is, the nature and the character of God? And then what Paul is going to do through 4, 5, and 6, and really in chapter 6, he gives us our defense mechanisms and our offensive weapons as we go into a battle to defend the gospel. 
So he's going to say, this is who God is, and now this is how you're going to live out the practicality of who you say God is. It's to love other people. It's to love your wife. It's to love your husband. It's to love your children. It's to love your boss. It's to love those under you. And now in chapter 6, what Paul is going to do and has been doing is say, if you live out the Christian faith, there will be persecution. See, we we don't want to talk about the persecution. We want to talk about the unicorns and the rainbows that come when we get saved. But God's word doesn't talk about unicorns and rainbows. This is not going to be your best life now, as one preacher says it, when you come to Jesus. The way he says it. It will be, I promise, your best life you've ever had. But it will come with great tribulation and great persecution. As I said last week, if the holiest man to ever walk the planet with no sin was persecuted by the world, you better believe we're going to be persecuted. And so now Paul gives us our armor. He tells us in verse 13, take up the whole armor, he says. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. Not just the evil one, but the evil day. And having done all this, stand firm. And now in verse 14 through the following, he tells us what our armor is. Think of it this way. Think of it in this light. He's talking as if we're getting ready for something. You think about an athlete. When an athlete gets ready to go into battle or go into the game, does he not go to the locker room first? And does he not piece by piece by piece by piece put on all of his equipment? How ridiculous would it look like if someone that played football went out there in a tie-dye t-shirt and baggy shorts? No helmet, no pads, no cleats. Like, would he be ready for what he's entering into? Or a basketball player going out in a three-piece suit to play basketball? Now, I'm a great shot, but with this suit on, anybody in the room can beat me. Even Tennyson. This is cumbersome. And so every time, every athlete has a uniform that's given to him by his team to do what? To perform to the most elite ability that he can. And so what Paul was saying is, hey, you are getting ready for something. And so I asked the question to us this morning, what are we preparing for? And are you prepared? See, if you don't believe you're getting ready for something, then there's no need to take preparation for something. And what Paul has just listed out to us, the first five and a half chapters is what we're getting ready for. He says, you're getting ready for war. He just told us that in the previous verses that we looked at last week. Put on the whole armor, God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over the present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what we're getting ready for. That every time we wake up in the morning, that's what we must be prepared for. There is a war out there waiting on us. And I don't know if we really believe that. I think we believe it cognitively, but I don't know if our hearts believe that. 
I don't know if we're really ready for the war that we say we're entering into. And now I'm going to get to how come. He says, this is how you are to prepare. This is how you're to prepare for the war that you're about to face. Verse 14. Stand, therefore. Notice he doesn't say run. Notice he doesn't say retreat. Notice he doesn't say flee. Notice he doesn't say take it easy. He says, take a stand, get ready. That's where it starts, us taking a stand with the understanding that, hey, the war is coming. Do not retreat. Take a firm stand and put this on. Having fastened, that means already putting it on, already doing it. And it's also the idea that it's ongoing. You always have this on. And what does he say? Where does he start? All the places of the army he could start with. He could have started with the gospel, the shoes. He could have started with the breastplate. He could have started with the helmet. He could have started anywhere, but where does he start? With one little piece of equipment. He's saying, in essence, the most important thing to start with is your belt. What does that mean? You see, we, we think in, in our terms, if I took my belt off now, my pants would be a little saggy, but, but they wouldn't completely fall to the ground. At least I hope we're not going to try that. But what Paul is saying to us, take on the belt of truth. And what he's saying is the, the way the men wore clothes back then was this long, loose tunic garment because it was hot. So they needed loose clothing to stay cool. But he's saying, when you fasten the belt, you were preparing for something because when they would put on a belt and they would fasten the belt, it meant to, and, and another pa- uh, translation says, gird up your loins. So they would take the bottom of their tunic and pull it up and tuck it into their belt so that they would be ready for quick movement. This was a preparation move. Not, not just a cosmetic move. So he starts with preparation. Are we prepared to run the race, as Paul tells us in another book? And my great fear is this for us, the church. We are so lazy spiritually that we have no preparation. And he says, to be prepared with what? The truth. Be prepared with the belt of truth. This is where it all starts. I think we think we want to start with righteousness. We want to start with the gospel. We want to start with our salvation. We want to start in all these places. What Paul says, no, where it starts is the truth. Be prepared with this. How come? Because that metaphor that he's using, the belt, the belt held everything else together. Everything else hinged on if the soldier had a belt that could hold all the other garments in place. And so I think it's twofold. It's not just the truth of God. Do you know the truth of God this morning? Do you really know this? 
do, do we live it the way that David said, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I may not, what, sin against you. The only way not to sin against God is through knowing the truth of God. And if this, I said every Sunday, if this is the only time in your week that you're in the word of God, I would say you do not know the truth of God. This is not enough, a 35-minute sermonette, sometimes 50 minutes. Again, I, I'll say it again. If all you do is eat one time a week, 52 times a year, you will starve. You will be malnourished. And Paul is saying to us, start with the truth of God. And then I think he's also saying, once you know the truth of God, then you will speak the truth of God. You cannot speak the truth if you do not know the truth. What does he say? What does Jesus say? Know the truth. And the truth will what? Set you free. See, I, I think our nourishment of the mind with the truth of God falls so, so short of what God offers to us. To be an effective Christian warrior, we must be bound up with the truth of God. Like if you're really going to be in this battle, you're really going to be in this war, if you're really going to run the race that God has set for you, you must know the truth. You cannot sit on the sideline. Have we taken up and girded ourselves with the truth of God? And then do we speak the truth of God? The next thing he tells us to do Am I the only one that's hot? Because it is blazing hot in here today. I might have pit sweats. I don't know why I just said that out loud. Sorry. The next thing he tells us, once we've got the truth of God around us and wrapped in us and, and everything's tucked in to its place, he says this. He says this in verse 14, uh, part B. After you've fastened the belt of truth and having put on what? The breastplate of righteousness. So he said, once the truth of God has been put on, now put on the breastplate of righteousness. Well, think about what a breastplate does and where a breastplate is. Where's all your vital organs? Outside of your brain, all of your other vital organs are going to be protected by the breastplate of righteousness. So he's saying, put on your breastplate to protect your vital organs. That's where Satan's going to come after you, the vital places in your life. He's going to come with doubt. Anyone ever experienced doubt in the room? Anyone ever experienced discouragement in the room? Anyone ever experienced the fear of losing salvation in the room? Those are all of our vital places. And how does he do it? He does it, Satan, the schemes of Satan are through the vital places. But look, look where it started. If we knew the truth of God, the truth of God says what about our salvation? We're always secure. What does the truth of God say about our discouragement? That he's always with us. You see, so if we just have the breastplate on without the 
truth of God, the breastplate will fall right off. And I think we're more concerned about putting this breastplate on, on again, on again, because we haven't put the truth of God around our waist to hold up the breastplate of righteousness. What does it mean to have the righteousness of God put on to us? The theologians call it this, the imputation of Christ. That's a big word. That's a theological word that can make our brains shut down. But all that it means is that Christ's righteousness at the time of your conversion was placed onto you. You see, it all hinges on Christ's righteousness being imputed onto me. That's, that's the thing that gives me protection. It's not my own righteousness, as Isaiah says. My own righteousness to God are what? Filthy rags. So I need Christ's righteousness imputed onto me. That's the breastplate of righteousness that will cover the vital places in my life. And I wonder, church, do we really understand the imputed righteousness of Christ Jesus onto us? That changes everything, church. When the righteousness of a holy God is put onto us, we walk differently. If we really understand what we're going to do in a few minutes coming to the Lord's table. This is the imputation of Christ in our life. This is the example of the impartation of Christ onto us. And he says, put on the righteousness of Christ. Here's the beauty. That righteousness has been put onto you. You cannot put it on yourself. So what does Paul mean? He's saying once that in that once the righteousness has been placed onto you, then your life will be different. You'll live a life of righteousness. But I cannot live a life of righteousness without Christ's righteousness being placed onto me. Because if, if Christ's righteousness has not been placed onto me, I'll spin my wheels hoping to do better, 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 hoping to gain favor before God. And it always falls short. And so what does the breastplate of righteousness show us? Our total dependence on God. You see, without that breastplate of righteousness, we are vulnerable, vulnerable creatures. With the scheme of devil coming to our attack, the, the vitality of who you and I are. So I must be reminded of Christ's righteousness that's put on to me as I stand firm. So we put it on. It's a day by day putting on through the act of obedience to who God's called you to be. And so I'd ask this question. Does your life, the way you live every moment of every day, show the world the impartation of Christ in your life, the righteousness of Christ? Do you live righteously before others? Then he says this, after standing firm, after putting uh, the belt of truth around our waist, after putting on the breastplate of righteousness, he says this, and now the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel. 
Now, shoes are an interesting thing. If you come to my house, which you're all welcome, uh, when I moved here uh, three years ago uh, to Murfreesboro, I had to get my closet ready. And I began to go through my shoes, and I realized uh, I, I probably have a shoe for every occasion and then some. Uh, I've got more shoes than Jenny. I don't mean to brag by any means, but uh, I think we counted 52 shoes. Is that right? 52 pairs of shoes. Yeah, yeah, I know. Judge me. That's okay. I'm, I'm okay with judgment. I see all your eyes peering at me. But I began to think about all the shoes that I have and all the things that the shoes are for. I got a black pair of dress shoes because you can't wear uh, brown shoes with, they just got to match, right? You just got to look all right. I, I got some basketball shoes. I, I, I've got some running shoes. I've got some hiking shoes. Right, and what does Paul say? What kind of shoes are we to put on? He's saying put on the shoes of the gospel. You see, shoes for soldiers were an important thing. They, they were like cleats in our day. They were sandals, but the sandals covered all the way up to the shin. And on the bottom of the sandal were uh, nails that they had put into place. How come? So that the soldier could have traction wherever he want, went. Think, think about it for a moment. If I go to play football in my church shoes, am I going to have any traction in a field? I mean, I'm going to get pushed all over the place. And so what Paul was saying is, make sure you have the right shoe on. The shoe of the gospel. What does he say? Be ready. The readiness of the gospel. I think it's twofold. I, I think this shows us the advancement that must be taken place for the gospel. We, we take the gospel to the end of the world. Is that not what he told us in Matthew chapter 28? Therefore, go. Go with the gospel. And I wonder how many of us have house slippers instead of cleats as we take the gospel. And when it gets tough, we slide all over the place. Because we're not ready. Paul says it a different way somewhere else. He says, be ready in season and out of season to give a defense for the gospel. And yet we have house slippers on. We have not prepared ourselves as we go. Uh, I think it's important that we understand the gospel. Is that not what he says to us? He says, therefore, put on the shoes with readiness. By giving by the gospel of peace. I believe that's twofold. First, it starts with us. One writer says it this way. Jerry Bridges says it this way in his book. I believe it's uh, Transformed by Grace. He says in his book, Transformed by Grace, that we must share the gospel with ourselves every morning. That every morning that we wake up is a new day to share the gospel with ourselves. The gospel is a reminder that, that I'm a fallen being and without Christ, I'm destined to go to hell. But because of Christ's righteousness that has been imparted on me, my whole life, my whole eternal existence has changed for eternity. And so I'm reminded that Christ did what I could not do by saving me. 
That's the gospel. So I get ready in the morning by putting on the gospel, sharing the gospel with myself. And I wonder for us, church, if we've been so long in the gospel, we forget the power of the gospel. Like 50 years ago, you gave your... Christ, your life to Christ in a dramatic way, but over the 50 years, how it's lost its luster. See, the gospel is always fresh and always new to the soul. It's always a reminder of what God has done for us. You see, when we're reminded every day of the great goodness of God in our life and His great salvation for us, then we will be compelled with those feet of the gospel to go and share it with the world. And I beg the question, when's the last time you shared the good news of Jesus Christ with somebody else? And not in a Facebook post, not on an Instagram post, but you with your own mouth sat down across the table from someone and shared the great news of Jesus Christ and all that he can do and has done for their life. That's what Paul is saying. Put on your shoes and take forward the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever you go. You see, the statisticians say to us, that we, the Christians, are no longer really taking the gospel to the world. There's never been a time in history that we've had more unbelievers in the world than we do today. And I I get it. I, I know that the population increases. But we don't have a population problem. We have a boldness problem. Are we standing firm with the gospel? And proclaiming the truth of God to people. The gospel that sets them free. Here's what happens when you know the gospel. Two things. The gospel you understand, you now have peace with God. Do you understand without the gospel in your life that it is the wrath of God that will be poured out over you? Think about that for a moment. Without the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life, the wrath of God will be poured out. The wrath of God is going to be poured out on all that do not know him. God is a good God. God is a kind God. God is a a merciless God. God is a God of justice. But there is a God of wrath. That's his character. We don't want to think about the wrath of God. But God's wrath will be poured out. And because of the gospel, the wrath of God was poured out on Christ Jesus. We see that in Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And the wrath of God was satisfied at the cross so that it would not have to be satisfied in me. We just sang that this morning. So because of the gospel, we now have peace with God. And not only that, because we have the peace with God, we now have the peace 
of God. Think about that where Jesus is in the boat, he's in the storm, and the, the disciples are panicking. Remember that moment? They're panicking. They go to wake him up, and in the moment, Jesus wakes up and he calms the storms. That is having the peace of God. Like, if your life is in chaos, I beg the question have you taken your chaos to God so that he speaks over your chaos and there's calm in the storm? That's what it means to have peace of God. Yes, we live in a terrible world, and there's always going to be chaos. But the peace with God and the peace of God says, though it's not okay, it will be okay. In the moment, not even to what's to come. In the moment, we can have peace. We can have peace in the midst of our cancer. We can have peace in the midst of others' cancers we can have peace in the mix of our broken relationships and on and on and on and on i can go you can have peace if you're looking that you don't have a job we can sit with the assurance that god knows all things he's sovereign over all things and so i can rest in his peace in the midst of the chaos and then he says this after taking on the peace of the gospel he says now in all circumstances put on the shield take up the shield of faith there's two shields that the roman soldiers would have used back in the day two shields one shield was small just for attack purposes you'd have your sword in one hand you'd have a, a two and a half a uh, foot in diameter, uh, another shield just for your own protection. That's not the, sword, the shield that Paul is talking about. He's talking about the, the body length shield that covers all things. He's saying to us, Paul says to us, take on that shield that covers all things. That's the shield of faith. You see, faith covers all things. How come we take up the shield? Why would we take up the shield? We take up the shield because of what he says next. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. On what? The evil day. Don't forget about the evil day. He just told us about that in verse 13. So when Satan comes after you with, with falsehood, with doubt, with discouragement, with you fill in the blank, we have a shield that will take care of those fiery darts. And I just wonder if we haven't taken up our shield on a daily basis. You see, that's what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden, is it not? You see, in Genesis chapter 3, Eve and Adam did not wake up that morning. They were not prepared. They, they, they did not get ready. They did, had not spent time with the Lord. And what does Satan do? He comes after them with what? Doubt. Did God really say that? Where's the attack? Satan always attacks God's people with the truth of God. Let me say that again. 
Satan always attacks God's people with the truth of God. Right? Go back to Genesis 3. Flip there just for a moment. Verse 1, chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts in the field that the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Remember, that's not what God said. Remember, God did not say you can't eat of any tree of the garden. God simply said that one in the middle, that's the one you may not partake of. And then Eve begins to doubt. Right? We see the doubt creep into Eve. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And here's the doubt. Neither shall you touch it. God didn't say that to Eve. God simply said, do not partake of that tree. And then what does Satan say? He brings more doubt, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. What did God had just told them in chapter 2? If you eat of the tree, you will what? You will die. And so Satan attacks the people of God with what? The truth of God. Which is, I think it's so important that we put on the belt of truth so that we know the word of God so that when Satan attacks us with the word of God we say oh no 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 that's not what God's word says oh you you can lose your salvation that's not what God's word says Oh, oh you need to work your way into heaven that's not what God's word says oh if you come to Jesus it'll be your best life now that's not what God's word says I don't think we've taken up the shield of faith. Three things this shield does for us. It covers us. Here's the other part about the shield. We must link up with other people. If you've ever seen the the movie Gladiator, there's the scene in Gladiator where the, 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 the army's coming. There's other scenes, other movies that show when the army comes together. And what happens, the armies come together and they form a human shield with all the other shields. We are to link arms with other believers. I need your shield. You need my shield. I need Jared's shield as we stand firm. So that the fire arts can penetrate no one. I don't think it's by mistake how Paul lists out all the armor of God. I haven't covered all of them, but the ones I've already covered. The gospel, the feet, the shield, the breastplate, the truth. We're going to get to the helmet. We're going to get to the sword. Where's the place that isn't covered? my back which says i need someone else to watch my back as i watch your back you see if paul uh, stand up for a moment frank if frank and i put on the full armor of god and and we stand side by side together where do you think satan's going to attack us 
But when we link up and we get in community with one another and we begin to really dive in and tell each other the truth, what happens is I got your back, you got my back, and now what's covered? Everything. You see, it's not simply just putting on the armor of God, but it's linking up with other believers to make sure all of our body parts are protected. We need the shield of faith to help us do that. You see, when we have the shield of faith, faith removes doubt. You cannot have faith in doubt. They don't go hand in hand. See, my confidence, my faith in the Lord says He can do all things. Do I have faith in that? Do I believe that to be true? Let's continue on for the sake of time. You see, and so we can put out the fiery darts from the evil one. And now he says this, take up the helmet of salvation. Take up the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation says this. The helmet of salvation does two things. It protects us from the penalty of sin. That's our salvation. That's what salvation does. Salvation, when I put it on, it now protects me from the penalty of sin. I just spoke a few moments ago what the penalty of sin is. It's the wrath of God. And my salvation protects me of that. But not only does it protect me of that, it now also protects me of the power of sin. Salvation protects me of the penalty, but now it protects me, protects me of the power of sin. Sin no longer has power in my life if I put the salvation helmet on. I must remind myself again of my salvation. And here's where we can take that. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll go verses 8 and 9 and then finish up with 16 through the following. He says this, we are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. That's our salvation. We're perplexed, but we are driven not to despair. That's our salvation. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. That's our salvation. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. That's our salvation. So do not lose heart. We don't lose heart when we remind ourselves of our salvation. Though our outward selves is wasting away, our inward self, our heart, is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. So we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. That's our salvation. For the things that are seen are temporal. But the things that are unseen are eternal. That is our salvation. We put on our salvation to protect us and to provide for us a reminder of all that Christ has done for us. Our helmet of salvation protects us from Satan, the great deceiver. Wearing the helmet of salvation gives us great confidence. Because if I put on the helmet of salvation, then I'm reminded every day that the battle has already been won. 
So it gives me great confidence to go into war. See, I can go into war knowing with my salvation that the battle's already been won. If I were to tell you, hey, do this, and I guarantee the outcome will be victorious, you would with all confidence move forward. And I wonder why we're not moving forward. I think because we doubt our salvation. Now, I know we believe we're saved. But do we believe we're saved from all these other things? That gives me confidence to push forward. I just wonder, church, if we have a gospel problem, a witness problem, because of the lack of our salvation problem and believing we already have the confidence. God's already set the way, he tells us. He knows the outcome before we know the outcome. We just read that nothing can crush us, nothing can take from us, nothing can steal from us. Why? That's our salvation speaking. So we have confidence when we put the helmet of salvation on. The confidence says this from Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, what can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for all of us, who he will also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised. Who at the right hand of Father is already interceding for us. That gives us confidence. That God, Christ Jesus, is interceding in this very moment before the Heavenly Father on our behalf. That's confidence. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? self-tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, he, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. We've conquered all things. If you are a believer this morning, you have all that you need for a life of holiness and godliness because Christ has set the way for you. Let us live with confidence and boldness with our helmet of salvation. Let me continue. And then he says this. And now take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, he starts and ends Two things. The first one, he uses the word logos. It means the the eternal word of God. So he starts with putting the belt of truth, the belt of the word of God around our waist, and now he ends, take up the sword of God. Why would he say the same thing twice? Because he's not saying the same thing twice. You see, that next word in the Greek has to do with a Pacific word. That we take up the word of God, a word in detail. That's what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, you know the story. The the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. And turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. 
And when Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came, the serpent came, the deceiver came and said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Where is he doing? The sa- Satan, the deceiver, is attacking Jesus with the very words of God. Right? Remember that what did God say? You are my son who I'm well pleased. And he's, the Satan is saying, if you're really the son of God, then do these things. And what does Jesus do? But he answered. He answered with what? The truth of God. He didn't answer with some uh, etherical idea. He didn't answer with his best thinking. He took the word of God to defend himself against the deceiver. And he said this in verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. You see, he took a very detailed word of God to defend himself against the deceiver. And I ask the question, he goes on the next one. He defends himself again with the word of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to test. You shall worship the Lord your God and he will only serve serve you. He takes the word of God to defend himself. Not the whole counsel of God, but the word of God. Which I wrestled with this week. You see, I would say I know the Word of God. I've studied it. I've preached it. I've prepared for it. I could walk you through. There's, uh, scholars would say the, the progressive redemption of history. I could walk you through the Bible in general ideas, but do I really know the Word of God? Like when doubt comes, do I just say, God removed the doubt, or do I open God's word to a place that speaks of the doubt that comes, and God says, no, there is no doubt. Do I know the word of God as my sword? Am I wielding the sword? I was telling someone this week, I wonder how often Satan comes to me, and I pull out my sword, and it looks like a white butter plastic knife. That's not the Word of God. The Word of God says this, I'm sharper than any two-edged sword. That's not a plastic butter knife. Have I really, really taken the words of of God and planted them in my heart? Here's the deal. This is a scared reality as we come to close. I, I have more, but for the sake of time. Satan knows the Word of God way more than you and I know the Word of God. How? We've already talked about it. He always uses the Word of God as his weapon against us. So he knows the Word of God. He's no fool to the Word of God. Our only offensive weapon in the armor of God is the Word of God. So this is our only offensive weapon. How well do we know the Word of God? And then he wraps it up with this. We read verse 18. Pray at all times in the Spirit 
with all prayer and supplication. To the end, keep alert with all perseverance, keeping supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that the word may be given to me to open my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. I think we can come to that verse and we can overlook that verse pretty easily because we've seen all the armor of God. But here's what Paul is saying to all of us. How do we put on the armor of God? Through prayer and prayer alone. Are we, church, covered in prayer? Do we pray at all times? Do we intercede for the saints? Do we intercede for each other? Because we got to know we're going into battle. And I know that Frank and that you and everyone else in the room tomorrow is going to get up and you're going to face things I don't even know. And so am I begging the holy God as you put on your armor, God, please be with the saints. I think we just bypass this verse. Oh, prayer. Oh, it's just prayer. Man, the power of prayer. Five things, and I'll close. Prayer must be spirit-directed. I love the thought that even this morning, I'm praying, I, I, I didn't know what to pray. But the promise of God says when I don't know what to pray, the Spirit prays on my behalf. So my prayer life must be Spirit-directed and Spirit-led. The, the second one says this, prayer must be continual. I pray without ceasing. The third one is this. It must be persistent. And it must be intercessory. And the last one is this. There must be variety in my prayer life. And I would challenge you this. Now, I read a book this past year that has really helped me in, in a tremendous ways in my prayer life. Because I'm so much like that dog from the movie Up. And be talking to us, a squirrel. Anyone else like that? Like, man, I, I'm like deep in prayer and all of a sudden, man, I'm like chasing unicorns around rainbows. Am I the only one? Maybe you don't do unicorns and rainbows, but that's just how I think. But I read this book and it said, it, when I don't know what to pray, I don't know how to pray, just open God's word and pray God's word. Start with the Psalms. That's all the Psalms are. It's just the prayer of godly men to a great heavenly father. So if you don't know how to pray, you don't know what to pray, start here. Pray God's word. As we get ready to fight this battle. As we come this morning to the Lord's Supper, I'd remind us of this. It's what Paul says in Corinthians. He said, don't take the Lord's Supper in an unholy way. If you have something at your brother, go and make it right. Have a clean heart before you come to the Lord's table. And he says, come to the Lord with preparation of our heart. I think there's nothing better we can do this morning as the deacons come forward that we will uh, prepare our hearts. And I would ask yourself these questions. Do you realize 
you're in a battle, you're in a war. And are you prepared for that battle? Have you stood firm and have you fastened the belt of truth? Have you put on the breastplate of righteousness? Have you put the shoes of the gospel of peace on your feet? Have you taken up the shield of faith? Have you put on the helmet of salvation and are you wielding the sword of the Spirit? And do you pray at all times for yourself and for all the saints? And are we praying to advance the kingdom of God? You see, when we advance the kingdom of God, there will be persecution. We have an adversary that fights against the declaration and the proclamation of the good news to be proclaimed in all the world. How come? Because Satan already knows his destiny. He already knows the outcome. He already knows where he's going to spend eternity. He already knows all that. So he's going to do everything he can to distract and discourage the child of God from living a life of wholeness and completeness. And he's going to want to distract other people that don't know that good news from receiving the good news. Because he wants to take everyone down with him. He's that kind of guy. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning, again, as I started the sermon, I'll end it this way. This is a reminder of the goodness of God. God's faithfulness to us when we were not faithful to Him. While we were yet enemies, He died for us. That's His body and blood poured out for us and over us. That's a reminder this morning. And then he says this to his disciples. Do this in remembrance of me. Do what? Do what, Jesus? Do what in remembrance of you? He's not talking about taking bread and dipping it into a cup. He's talking about taking the gospel message to the four corners of the world. Do this in remembrance of me. Go therefore in all the nations. Baptize in the name of the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and command them to do as I commanded you to do. Make disciples. Proclaim the gospel message. And I promise this, there will be much persecution.